Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy. You're listening to Revive Thoughts. This episode, we have a special interview with David Guzik. He is the writer of the Enduring Word Commentary, uh, which is my personal, one of my favorite commentaries. I use it all the time. Uh, It's just a great, just whenever you're diving into the Word of God, if you want a good place to look, especially if you're in the Old Testament, some of those passages can be hard. I find the Enduring Word Commentary really brings it all together. And we are doing an interview with him talking about church history. He happens to have uh, classes on church history you can find on YouTube. He is very connected in the world, lots of different resources. And so I highly recommend you go check out uh, David Guzik. But for right now, we are doing an interview discussing church history with him, and I hope you enjoy it. Very excited to have David Guzik on here of the Enduring Word Commentary, and we're going to have links and stuff for you to check out below so that you can go uh, look at all the different projects that he is on. But I wanted to ask him, what motivated you to start studying church history and why did you want to share that and start teaching that with others? Troy, I've always had an interest in history. Uh, When I went to university, I graduated from the University of California at Santa Barbara. My major was history. And one great thing was since I was already involved in ministry by the time I went to university, it was great to take a lot of classes on the history of Europe, the history of Christianity, Uh, history of the Reformation there in my undergraduate schooling. So it's just always an interest that I've had, and God just opened up doors for me to do a lot of study, uh, not only at university level, but just a lot of reading on my own. And since I do like talking to people about the Word of God and the works of God, I've also taught history several times, sort of in a Bible college setting, and uh, it's just something I've really enjoyed. I, I just love finding out what God has done in the past and uh, what man has done in the past, both the, the good and the bad. I, I will say, it's, for me, I'm very much the same way. I've always been a big uh, history guy. Even before I was really a Christian or following the Lord, history was always a subject I really enjoyed in school. But I feel like it was only very recently in my life and that really in the process of running this podcast, that church history became something to me that I started to learn and really appreciate. And one of the things that we get over and over again, emails and reviews and people saying to us is, uh, why wasn't I taught so much of this stuff before? Where was this aspect of history? Why did it seem hidden from me? Do you have any like ideas or thoughts on that? Because I, I do feel like a lot of people don't know church history, don't really understand or ha- have even a realization that this is kind of a different area of study. I've known more than a few people who are turned off to history because they had a bad history teacher somewhere along the way. And you know what? Look, a, a bad teacher can make any subject seem boring or irrelevant. But, you know, when you have people who really, I think, kind of perceive some of what God has done and is doing, and really are able to apply uh, lessons, not, not that we're trying to look at the past through the grid of the present, but I think there's always things for us to learn, for us to be encouraged by, for us to be warned by when we take a look at church history. Uh, maybe I put a lot of the fault to it as, uh, first of all, maybe some bad teachers, but then as well, you know, 
Troy, let's be honest, especially today, we have so much to entertain us in the present moment that oftentimes the, the past is neglected as a source of wisdom. And, and I don't mean this in a weird way, as a source of entertainment. Look, I find, I find learning about history and, and what's happened in the past to be tremendously entertaining. And so I can find a lot of entertainment in the past. I, I don't need it so much to come just from the present moment. Hmm. That is really well said. Honestly, I think that the idea that we miss the wisdom of the past too, that we kind of think that we have all of what we need is so much of what I have learned. I feel like the past few years of just realizing actually we only really have a drop in the bucket of all the wisdom that there really is and that there is so much that we can learn by going back and reading the works and understanding those things of what has come before us. Now, you said you mentioned that you have this a natural love and a natural history, just desire. Are there any stories or any parts of church history that really draw you in? Like this is like there's this these guys, you know, these are the ones that you find entertaining or these are the people that you really could study all day and never get bored with. There's a couple kind of just general trends that really fascinate me. And one of them is the whole dynamic in Europe, which basically at the time you're talking Christendom, because Christianity extended outside of Europe, uh, sort of in that Middle Ages or medieval period, but not not in significant strength. I mean, there were uh, Christian presence and enclave in Africa, such as in Ethiopia and Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also a presence in India, but I mean, mainly you're talking about within Europe. What's so fascinating to me is to see how they dealt with the fall of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. and several centuries of just kind of um, decline, spinning their wheels. You know, Troy, in, in our modern age, we just kind of have the, the idea that, or it's beginning to change somewhat. I don't know where it's heading, but for a long time, we've had the idea that the future is always going to be better than the past, that we're just mm-hmm. kind of on this road to progress. Now, again, I say in the modern age, that's been shaken a little bit. You kind of see the popularity of a lot of dystopian movies and novels that kind of reflect that. But in general, we, we've had the idea that the, the future is going to be better than the past. And, and it's hard for us to grapple with the fact that there's been significant periods in history where there's, there's been this radical decline in politics, economics, security, agriculture, and, and of course, in some ways, uh, the spiritual life uh, of the Christian world. And there's been significant times where for centuries there was a general trend of decline in those things. It took Europe a long time to recover a a lot of the things that were taken for granted during the days of the Roman Empire. So that kind of whole general dynamic and trend and how it influenced medieval Europe and how there began to be a turnaround with that, with the Renaissance and then the Reformation, that's all very interesting to me. But another general trend I see is I'm fascinated to see throughout church history at the impact that was had when people turned their attention to the Bible, to the scriptures. And of course, in a pre-printing press age, it looked a little different than it did after uh, books and Bibles became properly distributed. But there's always been something very special that has happened in the history of the church 
when the people of God have really had a renewed interest and devotion to God and his word. Th- those are a couple themes that really interest me. So it's interesting that you say that because I feel like I also really enjoy studying that right after the Roman Empire falls to kind of the medieval era as well. I I think of like Gregory the Great and how he was just wrestling with trying to kind of control Rome at a time when there were hardly any other Christian you know, Nicene Christianity places. I mean, there were people who were kind of like, yeah, you know, Jesus is one of many God's people, but there just weren't that many places left in Europe that were holding on to the faith. And then you have people like Charlemagne show up and we would look at them today from a modern perspective and see them as really brutal. And yet I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of Christians back then, they would be like, oh my goodness, there's a place I can safely be a Christian. And again, like I'm not going to be killed by, you know, barbarians or whatever. This this is a safe place for us. I just think it's really interesting. And we so take for granted this kind of idea that Europe has, you know, people will say it's always kind of been Christian when in reality there was a real time period when it looked like, to, at least from my perspective, that Christianity was not going to make it out in Europe. Well, sure. There was the earliest period, even under the days of the Roman Empire, when uh, you know, when Arianism was a, mm-hmm. an incredible threat to the church. Uh, you know, if you look at it just from a historic perspective, you know, I, I kind of hate to say it, but, you know, there's times when studying history when you kind of have to say leaving God aside because God does have a plan. God does have work he's working out and that's always going to be accomplished. But uh, if you were just kind of take that out of the equation and look at it, you know, in a detached sense, then you can say that the church for a, a good while looked as if it would end up very Arian in its theology. And mm-hmm. Arianism basically is a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is a created being who's exalted among God's creation, but he's not God, as the scriptures say he is. And th- this this was an almost run thing. Um, I think it was Athanasius, I, I could be wrong on this particular quote, who said that you know the 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 world was surprised to wake up and find itself Aryan, and just how popular it was and how uh, effectively it had promoted itself. But yet, uh, man, by the grace of God and by the faithfulness of a lot of courageous Christians, they came back to a place of real biblical orthodoxy of seeing what the Bible does actually say about Jesus that He is God. So you, you have situations like that that you just think, man, this could have gone another way. So there was that great danger. But then there was also a a danger where in many ways, you got to be careful not to exaggerate this, but in many ways, the medieval church lost its course. Mm -hmm. Uh, The European church in in medieval uh, centuries, there really became a, a focus on uh, the church itself rather than on Jesus Christ, that, that people look to the church for salvation. You know, and kind of in a theologically detached sense, we can talk about that. But on a practical level for individual believers, man, they got to look to Jesus for their salvation, not to the Amen. church in and of itself. Uh, but there, there was, there, there's all these centuries of, of these difficulties. And again, I, I want to be careful. You, you, you can overstate such things. You can act as if uh, there were no believers in Europe or that. But there, there were, as you mentioned, there were periods of periods of serious decline uh, that the church 
had to to come back from. And uh, those principles in some ways apply to today as well. I think so. Now, I can kind of change course here just a little bit, but we're kind of touching on this subject without almost talking about it. And I think it's really important. One of the reasons I find that a lot of people are scared to study church history or have discussions about church history is that prior to the Reformation, you know, those first 1,500 years would be considered, you know, Catholic church, right? What would you say to people who, they obviously, they're not Catholics, they're, they're not interested in being Catholic, which makes complete sense, we're Protestants or evangelical or what, whatever your group you're inside, but you're, you're away from that side of the church. How are you supposed to approach those 1,500 years prior to that moment? Well, you're, you're to recognize that God was still at work, that there were people even among what you would call the Roman Catholic Church, there were people in there who were who were born again. There were people who understand it uh, to some extent that the true nature of of salvation and their relationship with God, and God was moving in and through those people. But but yet it's also interesting to see throughout all those centuries that there were a lot of groups that were marginalized, uh, some of them condemned as heretics, who were actually uh, largely biblically faithful. You know, Troy, this is a real difficulty because when you deal with some of these groups that have been condemned as heretics in the church's past, sometimes the only information you have from them comes from their enemies. Mm -hmm. And you don't know if their enemies are representing them fairly or properly. And there have been times where I would say either for no heresy or for relatively minor error, uh, whole groups have been attacked and people have been slaughtered. And, and so to, to understand kind of those dynamics, how, how we, it's important for us to, to keep our eye on what are the most important things, to not condemn brethren over things that are relatively minor, that, that may be wrong, uh, but just to sort those things out, that's of great use for today and, again, often neglected when people take a look at, at church history. Absolutely. All right, so, again, changing gears on you, just kind of throwing another one at you. When I read the Enduring Word commentary, which, I, again, I love very much, I notice that you always have a very wide variety of quotes that you pull from and that you're kind of looking at that will complement the passage. But if you could go back in time and sit in – three different churches, you know, language is not a barrier, anything like that. Whose churches would you want to go sit for a Sunday sermon and listen to, do you think, from the past? Oh, wow, that's great. What a great, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I would I would love to catch something from that medieval period with uh, some of these guys like... Um, uh, Peter Valdo there in France. Uh, he he was a guy who ended up leading a movement that they called the Valdensians. Mm-hmm, and yeah. Peter Valdo was, I mean, this was a man who loved God's word. I, I don't have any doubt that he and I would have some doctrinal differences on some things, mm-hmm. but I, I can't deny he really loved and honored God's word. And it would, I would love to hear that man preach. I would love to, to sit in on one of the services that he had with him 
and his followers. And another guy that I would really like to to hear is one of the early reformers, um, John or Jan Hus. Uh, they're in yeah. Prague, modern day uh, Czech Republic. W- one reason why that's meaningful for me is several years back, we took a church history tour of Europe. We led a group and we went to Prague and, and we actually got to go into that room that was called Bethlehem Chapel where uh, Hus would meet with his followers. And I was kind of astounded to see that it wasn't really a church place. It was more just like an assembly hall, a meeting hall, uh, because they weren't there to conduct masses. They were there to worship God in song, to pray, and to hear uh, Jan Hus preach. I'd love to hear some of that. And then, um, man, you know, if you limit it to three, maybe I'd take uh, Peter Valdo, uh, Jan Hus, uh, but then, man, some of the guys, I mean, wh- who who wouldn't give something to hear Spurgeon preach in yeah. the Metropolitan Tabernacle? That that would have been amazing. But but I could uh, add lists on there. Um, would have been amazing to hear Luther preach, that's for sure. Mm. And uh, if you go to the city of Wittenberg today, you can take a tour of the city and they'll take you to uh, the, the very church, the city church where he was uh, the pastor and where he just simply did his pastoral work. Uh, so that that's an amazing place. And, you, you know, I, I mean, I've sat in those pews and looked up there and looked around the whole church and just thought, what would it be like to be uh, part of this congregation and see some of the remarkable things that God was doing? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I always forget to think of Luther when I think of those questions. I always kind of go, you know, Charles Spurgeon, maybe Jonathan Edwards, maybe John Wesley, usually recent guys, but I would love to hear or see uh, Basil as well from the older church or some, but sure. I always forget about Luther. I don't know why I, lo- I always kind of forget that I, he's somebody you would want to see in person if you could. You know, you now think kind of, of John Chrysostom yeah. preaching in Hagia Sophia yeah. there in Istanbul in Constantinople. Man, that would have been a thing. Um, but yeah. you know, uh, Troy, to, to your uh, effect, uh, a, a lot of people forget that Martin Luther was uh, fundamentally, I mean, he wasn't only this, but part of his real life, he was a pastor. He pastored yeah. a church and had very pastoral concerns uh, day in, day out, week in, week out with his work there in Wittenberg. So, yeah, that's yeah. – and again, you visit the place and you can just see. It's not a terribly large church. I mean, it's not small. It, it would seat several hundred. But uh, it's um, – n- nor is it the fancy, ornate church in town, uh, Luther's church there in Wittenberg. But uh, again, it's – Guys like this, really, it would be amazing to get in a time machine and go back. No, you're, you're making me jealous because you've been to some of those places that I, I have not gotten to go to. I've only been able to go to Austria and Hungary once. At the time, I wasn't even knowledgeable enough to kind of know what I should have been looking for. Um, I remember when I was a lot younger, I was standing in Savannah, got lost on a road, and drove up to uh, George Whitfield's old uh orphanage took a picture of that and was like that's neat i bet that place is important and years later i was reading about george whitfield and i was like wait a second i have a picture of this place and found it in my photos and i feel like that's such a good description maybe it's just me but i feel like that's such a good description of where so many people in the church are at where you could be literally walking over the places that are super significant to the church's history and you wouldn't even 
uh, know it, you, you wouldn't have any idea that this was once, you know, I lived, we lived, my family and I, we lived in Hangzhou, China for a year. We were doing uh, some missions work there and we, we were very close to where Hudson Taylor was based. We, we used to live in Kansas wow. City and we didn't, we would walk over the spot where D.L. Moody preached his last sermon. There's just these like monuments in a sense that are all around us if we only knew how important those spots were. But I feel like when we look at the church today, most of us have just completely forgotten that connection. That's true, Troy. And, you know, there are people who take it in a very weird, superstitious sense. There are people who think that, you know, you can visit the graves of these people and kind of gain some of their anointing or power. And there's always weird ways that some people take things. But man, we just embrace it in the way that the Bible itself speaks of it, that we should learn from what God has done. You know, the Bible says in the Psalms, tell your children, tell of future generations of the great things that God has done. And the Bible's kind of into the idea of making memorials and recognizing the significance of them. And so just those things you mentioned, man, Hudson Taylor, D.L. Moody, uh, uh, John Wesley, or, or you said George Whitfield and his thing in Savannah. Yeah, George Whitfield, yeah. You know, the, these, these are just remarkable men of God. They, they weren't perfect, of course. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's yeah. trying to make that case for a moment. But yet these were undeniably men that God used in a significant way. And uh, we can learn something from their lives. And we can ask that God would, would work in our own day uh, in remarkable ways as well. This is Troy here. I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think you will really enjoy. Recently, a man named Paul reached out to our show. He said that he's a big fan of what Revive Thoughts is doing and asked if we could check out his show, Compelled, the Compelled podcast. I have been enjoying it and think it's a show that you would enjoy as well. Compelled uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. One of my favorite stories is a episode they put out a couple years ago about Virginia Prodan. Virginia was a small petite attorney in communist Romania during the 1980s, defending Christians in court. Her success, though, angered the Romanian dictator, and he vowed that she would have to pay. One evening, Virginia was alone at her office when a man entered the room, closed the door, and pulled out a gun. He told her to shut up, sit down, I'm here to kill you. She was face to face with a trained assassin. What happened next? Well, there's only one way to find out, but I guarantee it will blow your mind. Listen to Virginia to tell her entire story on episode 31 of the Compelled Podcast, which is titled, He Came to Kill Me. There are so many other great stories ranging from missionaries, addicts, prisoners, or regular people sharing how Jesus Christ transformed their life. Search for Compelled on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to the link that we will have below. Again, that's compelledpodcast.com. In the 1800s, maybe especially, I feel like I see a real movement in the church of where missions and missionary senders and they're trying things that haven't been done before. They're doing faith missions. You know, George Mueller kind of started it with the orphanages maybe, but there's all these different people doing these different ways of reaching out to the world. And missions and missionary work is really on the mind of the people. I, I'm not saying that missions is not still on the minds and the hearts of many Christians, but I feel like we have moved away from that to some degree, and I'm not sure if you would agree or not, but why do you think that it was once such an important thing 200 or so years ago to get people out to the world, and do you think it's changed and maybe why we're not doing that with as much gusto as we were before? Troy, let me kind of address that question by telling you that one of my favorite 
church historians. Maybe if I had to pick one church historian, then I like it's a guy named Kenneth Scott Ladderette, and and he's written some amazing books on the history of Christianity. Uh, he was a professor, I think, at Yale. Uh, he was, so he was very credentialed and and uh, you know academic man. But man, he just writes tremendous church history. And one of the works he's done is he has this volume of books. Uh, the history of the expansion of Christianity. And so it's basically a history of evangelism and missions. So he goes through and and there's a volume on the first three centuries. And then there's like one volume covering a thousand years and it's a fairly thin volume. <laughs> but when he gets to the, to the 19th century, to the 1800s, he spent, I think he has three or four volumes mm-hmm. on that century alone. And he calls it the great century in the history of uh, the expansion of, of Christianity. So what you're saying is absolutely true. Starting in the early 19th century, the 1800s, there was just this this dedication, this fervor. We've got to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And Christians didn't only talk about it. They didn't only pray about it. They didn't only give towards it and support it. They went out and they actually did it. And, and it was a, a time of huge advancement for the frontiers of Christianity around the world. And uh, as for why we don't see the same fervor today, uh, okay, I would say that that in many corners we do, there still is remarkable outreach happening and people very dedicated to reaching the nations and, and uh, doing all the things surrounding that that are essential. But... I think in many ways, Christians are taken up with other things. They're taken up with issues and policies in their own nations. Um, and, and Troy, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that Christians shouldn't have an interest or an involvement in the politics or in the, the uh, cultural issues of where they live. But it, it's kind of hard to put your focus on both. And... You know, I, I think some of that is has been a contributing cause. And then we, we also have kind of the steady secular drumbeat that comes back again and again saying, well, it doesn't matter what anybody believes. Or Christianity is just an expression of, expression of colonialism around the world, and therefore it's evil. And, you know, on and on along those same lines. I think those things have taken root in a lot of ways saying that it's wrong, it's bad for people to spread the gospel and uh, and the kingdom of God around the earth. Yeah, I, I think I would completely agree with all of that. And the only thing I might throw in or add is kind of, I've wondered if you've seen this too. I feel like the, for a long time, missionaries and, and those who would go overseas were really looked up to. And you anybody would know the name Hudson Taylor. I still think Hudson Taylor maybe would still count, but you would know the name of many of people like that. And I feel like now there's an, an I feel like a lot of Christians are looking more up to the, the teachers and that there's a lot of people who want to grow up to be the next, you know, maybe R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur or Martin Lloyd-Jones or someone like that. And there's a lot less people who are wanting to grow up to be the next, maybe William Carey, Hudson Taylor or, or John G. Payton or someone like that. And I feel, I, I do think that maybe the church has changed that perspective. And God may have a very well, good look, reason let's be for honest, that, but I do, uh, I do, it does seem the, like it's been a shift that In the story, the narrative presented by a lot of people, 
those people are bad guys. Uh, that that it would have yeah. been better to keep the gospel out of China, uh, for example, and to ignore Hudson Taylor's work. So uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. There, there's there's a lot of cultural opposition from the secular world, and mm-hmm. I don't know some measure of distraction from the um, yeah. from the, the the Christian world. But but Troy, I'll give you the really good news, and I mean I know you know this as a man who's familiar with missions and and right now uh, lives outside of the United States. But you you know I mean in a very real sense, in many ways I wouldn't say completely. But the center of Christianity is no longer in the Western world, if you're speaking in a global sense. That um, even if Christianity were to completely die in the Western world, and by that I mean basically North America and Europe, mm-hmm. even if it were to completely die, it, it is so healthy and so thriving in Latin America, in Africa, in parts of Asia and such, that mm-hmm. you know they, they don't rely on Western Christianity for their existence at all. I mean, hopefully there's there's help, uh, you know, globally speaking in the work of the gospel. But th- that is what's exciting is that even though uh, a lot of the decline, a lot of the things that we see concern us in the Christian world are really problems that we see in Western Christianity and not necessarily reflected globally. Yep, that is all very, there's definitely some truth in that. All right, I got two more questions for you, if you don't mind. And this one's kind of weird, but I, I want to hear what you think. Do you have any weird church history stories or any things in church history where you're like, I can't believe those things happened the way they did? Is there anything like that that you've noticed when studying where you're like, if, if it wasn't written down, you would have a really hard time believing it? Well, sometimes you read these gnarly martyrdom stories. And one one very rich field of that uh, has to do with the English persecutions under the the queen that was known as Bloody Mary. Uh, those were some brutal uh, martyrdoms. The burning of these martyrs described in great details at places like Smithfield and other places in England. Man, you you read some of those and you just go, wow, you just swallow hard and, and think what a remarkable thing that was. Uh, but then other things that you feel, I'll, I'll tell you one story that kind of is reflective of something in church history, uh, and I think reflective of the modern age. I remember reading in a book uh, by a woman named Barbara Tuckman. The book's called The Distant Mirror, and it's about uh, I have, Europe. I've read I that in the 14th read a long century. time ago. So just kind of chronologizing things in the 14th century in Europe. And she describes this time when a group of kind of marauding bandits surrounded a monastery, uh, a, a monastic compound is what we would count as a whole monastic community. And basically they issued an ultimatum, hey, give us this much gold, this much silver, or we'll just kill you all and burn all your buildings. And, and they have the record of the negotiations back and forth because normally they would negotiate these things. And one of the things that this band of marauders asked for, one of the things they demanded in their settlement was they wanted a letter of pardon for sins for every one of their group. So here were these guys who were like literally professional murderers and rapists and, you know, thieves. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they thought that if they had a letter of pardon uh, for their sins issued by some monk, you know, somewhere in France, 
that they could just kind of present that, uh, you know, at the pearly gate, so to speak. Yeah. And and they'd be fine. They'd go to heaven, which to me is illustrative, not only of such a, a weird thing of understanding what the Bible says about the forgiveness of sins, but it's also remarkable to me to see how seriously these men took the idea of heaven and hell. Mm. Uh, I mean, these were men who, again, they, the entire conduct of their life was sinful just about. But they um, they still said, hey, if there's a way to get to heaven, I want to get there. Uh, so, yeah, th- stories like that I find are really fascinating. I love stories like that, too. Those kind of weird moments. For example, I believe when John Calvin was still, when his, his father was wanting him to grow up to be a Catholic priest, like in the county next door, there was a four-year-old that was doing the job as a Catholic priest over there, like province. There's just all these bizarre things that when you read them, you're like, "How? what did that, like, what did those things even look like, you know? Um, all right, so my last question kind of just to wrap up here, and, and to, what is something that has inspired you? It could be a story or it could just be a theme that you've seen, but what is something that you're, because you've studied church history, because you've seen this to be true, it has, it has helped you in your own walk with God? You know, I'm very inspired to see the devotion to Jesus that people had despite lacking so many of the comforts and benefits that we just enjoy every day. I mean, look at us here, Troy, you're, you're continents away from me. (laughs) Yeah. And here we are speaking over these things. We have access to knowledge, access to technology, access to, how about this, to air conditioning, to modern medicines. Mm -hmm. It, it's just kind of strange, and, I, and I, I don't want to say this to invalidate people's concerns and difficulties today, but somebody would just have to admit that it's, it's strange the things that we find so difficult and intolerable in our present age, mm-hmm. where in previous, for most of human history, people have been battling just for survival, and, yeah. and they really loved Jesus and served him in the midst of it. Uh, I, I find those just kind of general principles and trends to be very edifying for myself spiritually. No, I, I would completely agree with that. I think the one thing that studying church history has helped me to do a lot less of is complaining because when I look at yes. the way my life is and I look at the way the others live their lives, and I realize I, I've i got it really easy compared to, and if I ever start to feel a little like I've got it, you know, I'm, I've got it hard, a little, think a little hard on myself, all I have to do is listen to one of my wife's episodes of Martyrs and Missionaries going through the life of a Hudson Taylor or a David Livingston or, a, you know, an Amy uh, Carmichael, and I remember, nope, nope, things are pretty good compared to what so many have gone through in church history. And it's not to not that it invalidates or it tells people, oh, your problems aren't real problems, but it really does put in perspective. If these people can talk as highly about Christ and God as they do, going through the loss of their children, the loss of their spouses, the loss of uh, all modern comforts, eh, it, it makes you got to realize, I, I need to have a little bit of a better attitude, I think, so often. Absolutely. That's very well stated, Troy. I agree completely. All right. David, I thank you so much for coming on, answering some of these questions. I'm really hoping that when people listen to this, they will become much more interested in church history. I feel like this is a perfect episode. If you're like, hey, what do we? what is church history? Why should we study? You send this one to your friends, hopefully, and say, listen to this. Like, this is what 
the goal of church history is when you when you study it and what you come from it. But if the person is listening right now and they're also saying, I would like to learn more about your ministry, where can they go to find out more about you and what you're up to right now? Well, maybe the best portal is just our website, uh, EnduringWord.com. But then, of course, people can see stuff on social media. They can just look up Enduring Word. Uh, YouTube has a lot of presence. I mean, this is no doubt where you saw the Church History series that you mentioned. So uh, they can look us up on YouTube as well. But all those things kind of link together. Uh, Website, social media, YouTube. People can find those things through there. Just look up for Enduring Word, and they'll find those resources. All right. I will have some of those links also in the episode description, so we highly encourage you to go check them out. I think that they are all great resources, and you, you cannot go wrong with them. So thank you very much, David, for coming on the show and speaking with us. I think it was, again, I loved your answers. It's always good to pick the brain of somebody else who loves church history as much as we do on here. Troy, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.